Welcome to the Animal Welfare Junction. This is your host, Dr. G, and our music is written and produced by Mike Sullivan. So today we are going wild. We have some amazing people that deal with wildlife. So we are going to learn all things wildlife. We're going to learn about important things about them, important details, as well as what to do and more importantly, what not to do. So I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves one at a time. So David, how about you start us off? Yeah, sure. I am David Donahue. I am the Wildlife Rehabilitation Operations Manager here at the Ohio Wildlife Center. We are one of the largest wildlife rehabilitators in the state of Ohio, taking a wide assortment of animals, and we take orphaned and injured animals at our facility and re rehabilitate them to get them back in the wild if possible. Next, uh, Jess, you want to tell us about what you do? Yeah, my name is Jess Armstrong. I work with OWC and then SCRAM. Scram Wildlife Control is a fee-for-service of the Ohio Wildlife Center. We deal with non-lethal approaches to nuisance animals, so animals in and around people's homes, in their structures, under structures, and we work very closely with the Wildlife Center to also assist with ill, injured, and orphaned animals. Barbara, welcome. Can you tell us about yourself? Sure. I am currently the president of the Ohio Wildlife Rehabilitators Association. I also head up a committee for emerging infectious disease. So we try to keep track of what's happening with wildlife in Ohio, especially, but also even across the country, things that may end up in Ohio, like some of the reptile diseases that are moving eastward that can affect our populations here in Ohio. And of course, the mission of our state organization is education and networking, primarily helping rehabilitators work together throughout the state with the Division of Wildlife, that's our permit holders, and really anybody in any area of the state that's trying to learn more about wildlife or what to do when wildlife is in distress. Last but not least, Gwen, do you want to tell us about yourself? Hi, I'm Gwen Hogan-Dorn. I am a wildlife rehabilitator with Ohio Wildlife Center, and I rehabilitate a large number of their neonatal orphan species. I am also currently the vice president of the Ohio Wildlife Rehabilitators Association, along with Barbara. I also am the chairperson of the state conference. All our listeners, I think that by now they understand that we're talking to experts in the field, so I hope that everybody has an opportunity to learn from what we're gonna be discussing today. First, we're gonna to get to what I think most people wanna know is what to do with injured wildlife, whether it's birds or raccoons, squirrels. What should somebody do if they find wildlife that's injured? Yeah, I could take this one on. So what we recommend is finding a rehabber that's closest to you. You can go to the OWA webpage that has an opportunity to see what rehabbers are close by. We use an ahnow.org is another webpage that people often use to find rehabbers. And then ODNR's website has the opportunities as well for your local rehabbers that are permitted. If you are in central Ohio, there are multiple rehabbers for our program specifically. We're reachable by Facebook and by phone. A lot of rehabbers are as well reachable by social media and phone. The goal is to always contact a rehabber first to see if that animal is truly injured or orphaned, to see if there's an opportunity to first get it reunited or to peacefully coexist with that animal first. If the person is not able to bring them into you, how does SCRAM work to help individuals when they have concerns about animals that are injured? So SCRAM is a fee-for-service. So if you have an animal that you don't feel comfortable, that's 
either in your actual living space, so a bat in the living room, something like that, or a sick or injured animal on your property, you can give us a call and then we will come out, contain the animal and either remove it from the living space and release on property. We always release on the property if the animal is okay to do that, you know, doesn't have any health issues or concerns. And then if it's an injured or ill animal, we'll transport it to the wildlife hospital. The Wildlife Center has a rescue and response team that is all volunteers, and I also help manage them. So if you are outside of Scram service area or, you know, not everybody can afford a fee, they are able to pick up animals too if they have the opportunity in their day for a donation as well. What would be one of the things, I know that sometimes people have the idea that animals, like especially young animals without their mom, they need to be rushed into the Wildlife Center. So what kind of things should people leave alone? Do you want to answer that, Jessica? Yeah. (laughs) The number one thing I think that we get is Eastern Cottontail rabbit nests. Mom will not be around those babies. They are going to be by themselves. Mom will visit between dusk and dawn. So if you find Eastern Cottontail rabbits or fawns, wait till deer fawns, both of those are going to be animals that have a very high prey drive there like, you know, they're prey for almost everything. So mom does not want to alert them to where they are. That's something that if you have questions, if you think they are actually orphaned, we can help. There's many steps on our website too, that you can go through to see before you, we always say kidnap an animal that doesn't really need to be brought in. Uh, How about the birds, baby birds that are off the nest? Like people think that if they touch a bird, then the mom's not going to claim it anymore. I'll be the bird nerd here. I already am a bird nerd. (laughs) So we do often foster as well with our baby birds. So what we would say is that if you can make a makeshift nest, we've used all kinds of fun materials, pencil holders, milk cartons for our cavity nesters. We often will make a makeshift nest and place that above the ground away from its predators. And we have a pretty high success rate with parents reuniting and using those nests when their nest is destroyed. Alongside of that, if you have multiple babies, we often can put some babies with other animal, other robins, or we use robins, starlings, and some other species, and really help to have it raised by a mother bird, which is super awesome. At the same point, she just takes them on because she doesn't recognize that it's a different bird, and we usually put the same size in there, and it's very helpful there. But yeah, we do reunite birds quite often. If they touch it with their bare hands, still bring it in. Let's have a conversation, see if we can get back into another nest or back into its nest or close by nest. So also speaking of birds, when you guys were giving me the tour, you were talking about injured birds that either will run into a window or something like that. And then you guys rehabilitate them and you release them back. So can you tell me about that process? Yeah, so there's two programs with that. So there's the general presenter, which is the public here, bringing in a bird that has struck their personal window. In previous history with biological science, we would say wait 20 minutes and then see if it flies off. What we've learned since then, though, is that many birds who hit a window suffer from brain hemorrhaging and brain bleeds and swelling and all kinds of injuries that the adrenaline is not showing us. So rather than wait the 20 minutes and see if it flies by, we ask that you contain it quickly and get it to a rehabber to see what's best for it. Alongside that, though, we work with a great program called Lights Out Columbus. Lights Out is throughout the entire state, and they actually help to collect window collision birds in downtown areas that are struck with light. So with that, we're able to help support those animals and do just the same process. We want to reduce the swelling. We want to check for injuries. 
Coracoiders are a very common thing that we see with some of our songbirds. It's kind of like our collarbone. Very hard to connect with it, but it is very painful for them. So we have a very high success rate with that treatment by getting them back out but really want to try to get them in as fast as possible. A little plug, though, if you're interested in Lights Out Columbus, you can definitely reach out to OWC, to the Audubon. We're all connecting on ways to help support our downtown birds. Cleveland takes an astronomical number of birds every single day with window strikes. So more people on the ground, more feet on the ground, helping to support that mission would be super awesome. Something else to think about with folks finding sick or injured or what they think might be orphaned animals is when they contact us first is if they can take a video or a photograph and provide the environmental description because a lot of times that helps us quickly and more efficiently respond to them as to whether they need to be catching it and bringing it in or that they should be leaving it alone. A baby screech owl on the ground is supposed to be on the ground for several days to a week before it can fly. So when folks send us a photo of the fledgling screech owl sitting in the grass beneath a tree, we're pretty sure he probably just came out of his cavity nest. And then we can ask people to keep their pets away from that area for a while until that baby has finished branching out and can fly. Or a common call is there's a hawk on the side of the road with a broken <laughs> wing and he's sitting with his wings out on the ground and I tried to walk up to him and he hopped away and he can't fly. And usually it's a hawk that has caught a rabbit or a snake or something larger, or it may have its crop real full. So it's doing what's called mantling, which is covering its prey so that other predators don't try to steal that food that he worked so hard to catch. And then if they have a grip with their talons, they're going to drag that prey with them, but they're not going to be able to fly with it. So it looks like they have a broken leg or a broken wing. And the information people can give us on that first contact, their name, the location or address of the animal, and a photo or video is just hugely expedites our ability to respond to them very quickly. I think Barbara, okay. that really, even with reuniting, we've used technology for our advantage now. Ring doorbells do such great work of watching to see if a mom comes back to a rabbit nest and using that technology to your advantage is so perfect. We always, pictures, videos, whatever you can do to not be close to that animal and you can use technology to support it, it really helps out. Yeah. I also think it's important too for people to realize that generally they contact OWC or a small time rehabber, they're volunteers. So not only does it help using technology and giving us all that information, it also saves a volunteer a trip because generally they are sacrificing their time, gas, all of that to get there, which obviously they will do if an animal is injured. But if we can guarantee that it is not before we send somebody out, it's always super helpful. And is there an online resource that people can look up things before having to call you guys so that maybe they can get answers ahead of time and not have to wait for a call? Yeah, the Ohio Wildlife Center has an entire section that's called Found an Animal, and it's basically, it will go by species, but it's the most common questions we get. We also have, if you go to Ohio Wildlife Center's Rescue and Response Team Facebook, either our main page or the Rescue Facebook, we have volunteers and staff members that monitor that. So we do get a lot of times where we request pictures that way. And then 
I mean, giving a phone call is easy for us. It's a or unmanned voicemail that's monitored by volunteers. So they just have to leave a message and then we'll get back to them usually pretty quickly, unless it's, you know, three in the morning. But even then we have volunteers that <laughs> will check when they can't sleep at night. So <laughs> one of the things that you brought up before when talking about leaving animals alone, you brought up the deer. And I found out just a few years ago that we can't treat deer. Why can't we treat deer? And what other animals are there that we cannot treat in Ohio? The primary species that we can't treat in Ohio by law are coyote and white-tailed deer. One of the problems with white-tailed deer is, you know, an adult deer or sub-adult, there's no way to keep them in captivity without them harming themselves. So you can't really hold them to treat them. Fawns, we can foster. So if a fawn is minorly injured, we're going to clean out the scrapes and wounds or whatever. We may rehydrate the fawn. We have 72 hours to help this animal get uh, sturdy enough to try to foster back out to the wild, either with its own herd. If the mother has been killed, then sometimes we can get another mother to foster that fawn. So we have some pretty good success, actually, considering that whitetails are not the best foster moms. They're not necessarily as interested in a foreign baby, but it really depends on the age of the fawn and the condition. If the fawn is fairly healthy and it's older than a week of age, we have pretty good luck. Or if it's newborn and we can get it with another fairly newborn fawn, and sometimes those does seem to have lost count of how many bonds they birthed out and are willing to take it. And a white-tailed doe can take three or four fawns. I mean, they produce enough milk to nurse several babies. So I never worry about how many fawns she may already have, but they will set them down in different locations so that if a predator finds one, the predator isn't finding the twin or the triplet. So sometimes it's hard to tell how many babies they actually have had that year. We have a lot of twinning and tripleting in Ohio for sure. Then coyote, again, it's not a species that would be easy to handle in captivity without habituating it to some extent. But if we do get orphan pups, the state of Ohio will allow us, if we can find a education situation for them, to go ahead and raise them for a captive situation in an education setting. So occasionally that has happened in Ohio. Are there any, any other species, any birds? I know that my, one of my technicians found a bird, and I can't remember what it was, but I'm sure you guys will educate me, that she said that it's considered nuisance and they're not allowed to be treated because of being nuisance. It all depends on the situation of the animal as well and how it's collected. So really you have to, we have to determine each situation determines if that animal is a nuisance or not a nuisance animal. And really there's a wide variety of situations that happen, but nuisance as a true description is causing a interruption in your home and daily life that it needs to, that you have requested it for it to be removed and you do not want it to go back to the place where it came from. Something we often see in an, as a nuisance animal situation is people who have vents with birds in them, specifically some of our cavity nester and opportunistic birds such as European starlings and house sparrows. And when they enter these areas, people actually purposely remove them because they don't want them in there. They're not willing to mitigate and not use that dryer for a minute. But at the same point, they say, I don't want these on my property. I don't want it happening again. And if that kind of knowledge comes through and they say, I don't want it on my property, I don't want 
to deal with this situation. That's what we consider a nuisance. We really try to teach against that, though, because really they they choose what's opportunistic. And that's where I throw Jess in here with Scram. We have ways to mitigate that from happening, from putting mesh over top of that. You have to find animals are going to choose a nest that's best for them. And they, they don't mind where it's coming from. They don't recognize it as a situation where it's uncomfortable for us. But instead, we can find ways to support them by peacefully coexisting. First of all, I would stop using my dryer for a good month if I knew there was birds such as Carolina wrens in my dryer vent. <laughs> that's big for me. I'm a big bird. <laughs> I wish I had flying scrolls on my attics, friends. That'd be amazing, <laughs> but I don't. Um, but that's the kind of thing that we wish peaceful coexistence looked like. Instead of, oh my goodness, I have a squirrel in my attic. I needs to leave now. Just you have to just wait because it's what people here on average eight to ten weeks for a mom to leave with her babies the longest distance, and then for raccoons, it's just a mount, and then. I'll let Barbara Ray take this one on because she really helps to explain when it comes to nesting animals and how we have to peacefully coexist once they've already made their nests. Right. So migratory birds covered under the Migratory Bird Acts are fully covered. So once they have chosen a nest and it's become active, it's actually illegal to remove the nest, the eggs, or the adults or babies. This comes up more with, say, a renovation of a property where they're cutting down some trees or moving a tree. Landscape companies, birds will nest in landscape trees sitting on a yard, a landscape yard, and then they're going to go ship that tree to somebody's home <laughs> to plant it. We actually can set up makeshift nests just even on the ladder in a box and species that don't normally nest inside a cavity if it's a fairly decent sized box maybe 18 20 inch opening and you can set a nest inside there on a ladder and support the ladder so the wind doesn't blow it over and the birds will very often just stay in that location because they seem to have a gps for where their nest is and even though it's sort of an unusual change we pull nests off of the plow trucks occasionally and we just set up a box right next to the where the plow truck was and the crew can move their trucks and the birds just carry on their nesting right out of the ladder box, what we call a ladder box, I guess. That's one way of doing it or moving it to the tree next to it, something like that. But I think one of the species you might be referring to as far as moratorium would be mute swans. And mute swans are not native. They're a European ornamental species that people purchase as pets usually on their pond, but they have moved to the wild and bred very successfully, and they're pretty hard on our native species. They'll destroy nests or even kill adult trumpeter swans, tundra swans, and any swans that are in their area. They're so much more aggressive. They also can really damage a pond because they pull up. 10 times the amount of greenery in the water that they actually need to eat. So they can really uh, imbalance the biota of a pond. So the federal government placed a moratorium on those birds years ago, which the state also supports. So if we get mute swans in rehabilitation, they either have to be euthanized or if we can find a permanent home for them where they cannot breed or escape, then sometimes we can get permission to do that as well. So not every animal that's not rehabilitatable by law has to be euthanized. It's just it has to be able to be put in a place where it can't reproduce or be back out in the wild. 
Same thing happens with non-native turtle species, which I think is really our yellow-bellied sliders and people that bring turtles up from the south or something like that. They can't go back to the wild, but they can be placed in an education setting. Some of the problems that we have with the mute swans is that a lot of builders and developers, when they put in these ornamental ponds, use them as an attractant for people. And they buy these swans, they put them on these ponds, and then they become a problem because they're not kept properly. Their wings are not clipped. They're flying off, they're procreating, and then we're right back in that vicious cycle again. A lot of people, too, believe that mute swans will help keep geese off your property, Canada geese, but that's also not a method that is sustainable or works very well. So we get a lot of that. We do goose mitigation as well as evictions and exclusions of nuisance animals. So we see a lot of that too with mute swans. Do we have to worry about diseases that these animals are going to be bringing when they're migrating in, especially if they're like an invasive species? I think any animal confirming that they're a wild animal, they everything can have diseases. Even non-wild animals can carry all kinds of diseases from parasites to external parasites to internal parasites. It's just knowing that what you're working with has them always has a potential. And we always want to watch when we're working things, bring the right bee and safety from a rabies vector species to different types of, I've had fleas on me. I've had all kinds of external parasites <laughs> on me at times. I've ever been here. It's just like with dogs and cats worlds. We see most of the same things, but one of the big things that I kind of think with our swans and our geese is the highly pathogenic avian influenza that's been passed, passing around, but that has nothing to do with, I think, believe truly with invasives, but it's just overall congregation of species is where we see more of an emerging disease over an invasive move through. The other animals that are going to be really touchy when it comes to disease in the population and why we don't move animals around or translocate would be our reptile species. And a lot of our reptiles live in very small ranges. So their immune systems are designed for the parasites and pathogens that are normal to that area. So if someone goes camping in the Cleveland area and captures a box turtle and keeps it for a pet for a few months and brings it to Columbus, and then they're trying to figure out, oh, can the wildlife center take this and check him out and release him? Well, <laughs> the state's not going to allow that because now he's been down Columbus and exposed to potential different types of pathogens here. And it's just some of our reptile species are kind of on the critical edge of existence because of habitat loss or even diseases among themselves. So moving those things around is a real risk. And so those animals are usually destined to a life of captivity in an education program. So we really encourage people, if you're going to pick up a box turtle while you're camping, that's fine. Look at him and enjoy him and then put him right back where you found him so that he can carry on his life. What zoonotic diseases do we need to worry about? One of the one experience that I had was we had an assistant that found neurologic raccoon out in the street and she brought it in. And of course, then everybody is concerned. What if it has rabies? It's a neurologic raccoon in the middle of the day. And it was submitted, the, the raccoon did pass away and it was submitted and tested for rabies and it wasn't, thankfully. But what kind of things do we have to worry about and with what wild animals? 
Well, rabies is certainly a concern because it does exist in the state. It's been gradually moving westward past a, a line along the Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky borders where the state and federal government have been doing what we call bait drops to try to inoculate wildlife using oral rabies vaccine. It's been fairly successful, but it won't stop the disease. Fortunately, most of the neurologic diseases we're seeing in raccoon or skunk or fox in Ohio are going to be things like distemper, which are highly contagious among those animals. Possibly we see some brain swelling illnesses, meningitis, things like that in fox. So those things all can look like rabies. But certainly people need to be wary of animals that are showing central nervous system disorders. Generally, people are kind of afraid to get close to those animals, so it's not as much of an issue with the public. The exception being bats. There are plenty of people who are not afraid of bats. They'll catch a bat out of their house, bring it in, and there was a situation years ago. In fact, this happened at the Wildlife Center while I was still there. A kid came in with a bat hanging off his finger by its teeth, and the mom and the kid were very happy to be bringing it into rehab because it was obviously not well. Of course, we had to test that bat and it turned out to be positive. So the child ended up having to go through all the post-exposure. You know, that's in most of our rabies deaths in this country, which are very few and far between, have been from bat species with people who either didn't know they had contact or they know they had contact, but it never occurred to them, you know, a month or two later when they're getting ill, that that had anything to do with their current illness. And that's really unfortunate because so few bats actually have rabies in the big population. And we do a lot of education on that. I think there's a lot of times in this country, we don't see enough rabies for people to even think of it as a real big risk. And it is certainly something we have to be aware of. I think other illnesses that wildlife carries is just common sense, wearing gloves, using towels. We certainly work with people when they bring animals to rehab. What kind of exposure have you had with this animal or your pets? I don't know of any cases of dogs, for example, as long as they've been vaccinated, do not get distemper from wildlife that does have it. You know, that seems to hold true across the country. As long as pets are vaccinated, they're pretty safe too. David, you might want to add some more things that you've seen with the public and some of the fears that people have, especially with birds. Would you mind if I intervene just for one second, David, because I need to dispel a myth and put my plug in for my favorite species, which is my raccoon, right? You mentioned, Dr. G, where you said, well, saw it out during the day, and I picked up on that. It's something that I want to talk about. Not, I won't say that if you see an animal out during the day, you want to observe it and make sure that the behavior is appropriate. It's not acting neurological, but especially in the early seasons when you're, you're having a lot of babies, mom has stuff to do. And so she's going to be out looking while the kids are sleeping, right? She's going to go out and she's going to look for secondary areas where she has to relocate her raccoons because they get disrupted. She's out doing that. She's out finding food for herself because having those babies is such such a strain metabolically. She needs lots and lots of food. So to see her out during the day is really not an uncommon thing and does not immediately translate to, oh my goodness, it's sick. And that's true of a lot of our nocturnal species. And also in the fall, you'll see a lot of them out during the day because they're loading up. They have to get 
enough body fat on them to be able to survive that winter. So they are becoming super opportunistic and they will eat anything that isn't nailed down. So it's not unusual to see those species out during the day. A good rule of thumb for the public is the animal on a mission. Is he going from point A to point B and ambulating in a normal way or climbing a tree versus is it disoriented and staggering around or even lying in your yard unable to really function? So those are your two types of it's healthy and it's moving around just fine in the daytime or it's not healthy and it's not moving very well in the daytime. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Barbara. Back over to diseases for other animals. I love <laughs> as well, but I also love me some birds. But there's all kinds of diseases you just have to watch out for. And just knowing that you live in a world of a biome that's not sterile is really important. There's a hantavirus for mice. If you spend every day looking at what kind of diseases all the animals have, you would have lists upon lists. But also we have diseases. We spread things around nonstop. Really, I think just making sure that if you work with a wild animal, if you see a wild animal, just protecting yourselves from the bite, protecting yourself from any kind of fluids from any of the orifices that they have, and just want to make sure that you are, we try to do a hands-off capture with things and trying to be as hands-off as possible because also it hurts animals like our waterfowl. If you put your bare hands on a waterfowl animal, the oils will affect their feathers. So we always just use gloves when possible, contain the animal, for any animal that you're containing to bring into a wildlife center, you always want to make sure you put it in a box and contain it. If it can be warm and if it's too cold, make sure it's warm for the night and it's in a quiet, dark place. Making sure that you're not leaving it in a room where your dogs are at, leaving it in a room with your children are at. You want it to have dark, so reducing your stimulus. Quiet, reducing more stimulus. And then making sure it's at a comfortable temperature and not outside in negative temperatures as it's an animal that needs to be rehabilitated. We get a lot of people who are concerned if they've got, you know, raccoons living in their attic space or bats living, you know, how there's a lot of issues and concerns with whether that's going to affect their health or not. I always tell people the quicker that we can get the animal out of your attic space, the better. And that's not by trapping. Trapping doesn't really help with the issue. The issue is going to be the entry point and the areas they're using to get inside. So we utilize those entry points to sort of evict the animals. I always say they sort of evict themselves. They go through those one-way doors and they don't come back. But we are honest with people that we take pictures to show people what the damage looks like inside of their attic space so they're aware because we don't do cleanup. But if it's something that is, I'll say, a lot of bat guano from an old colony, we are going to recommend that they contact somebody to have biohazard cleanup. But we ask all those same questions when, when bats are in a living space. Was anybody asleep with the bat in the room? We ask those questions and they really can help reduce fear in people. And they're like, oh, no, I saw it and it was in the living room. And I left my house because some people are so scared they'll just leave their house. <laughs> then we can know that probability of them having contact with the bat is very low. And then we always bring it to the wildlife center. And David's really good about calling back and asking those questions if he needs further information. A few months ago, one of my technicians had a bat that went inside of the house and she has quite a few cats. And then her concern was did the cats get to it? And her cats are vaccinated, but even when you're vaccinated, you still have that concern. And she immediately called me to find out what to do. And I told her, just take the bat to the health department to get it tested for rabies to see if everybody is safe. Is that what they should be doing if they have a dead batter in their house to figure out if they have rabies or not? 
Yeah, so what I would recommend is always try to triage the situation first. So we want to first see, was that bat potentially in a exposure situation? If it wasn't, can we try to get it to a rehabilitation facility to see what's going on with it first? So if it's in an office and no one uses that office except for during office hours, I would say that bat probably has the least amount of exposure warning. So that bat should probably come to a rehabilitation center to see if it got too warm. It doesn't know how to, it didn't hibernate nicely. Sometimes they don't hibernate all the way through the winter and the temperatures right now are so confusing for them. They're awake <laughs> in the awake and asleep. It's 72 degrees outside some days this week. So I would always recommend doing that triage first to determine is that, does that bat actually have an exposure situation? The second thing is, do we need to euthanize it based upon its exposure? So like you mentioned, your cats are vaccinated there. We actually work alongside the health department very regularly. So if the bat is still alive, we always recommend bring it to a rehabber first. And the rehabber can speak with the health department of that area to see, are we quarantining that animal or are we euthanizing that animal? A lot of times we quarantine them and we'll quarantine to see if there's any neurological symptoms. We can tell you what a rabies call sounds like because I've heard rabies. I know what rabies sounds like for a bat. We get very good at it. And the division, the Department of Health actually correlates with many of rehabbers quite often to say, yeah, that's set. We, we trust your call on it. You can keep an eye on it. And we're pretty spot on when it comes to symptomatic rabies animals. And then they'll ask, they'll say, your cat can go get a booster. And that's the opportunity for those animals that potentially had that exposure. So I would say instead of, if it's a dead specimen and the animal is fully deceased, Mm -hmm. I would say go through a health department. But if the animal is still alive, definitely get it to a rehabber first so they can help triage and choose what's best for that animal. This bat was dead. So that was kind of the concern is, did the cats kill it? Did it just die? What was the, you know, what was the situation like? Yeah, when they've already been deceased like that, it is easiest to just go ahead and get them tested. But in some cases, pets have exposure to a raccoon bite or a bat bite, and the owner knows it, but the animal left the scene or whatever. And in that case, it helps appease the public's worry to know if your pet was already vaccinated, go get a booster. And that really is, again, I've I've not heard any cases of vaccinated dogs or cats that have their distemper in the case of dogs and rabies, ever getting it, even if they've had exposure to a positive animal. So that's a way we can alleviate some of the anxiety of pet owners. How about our friends, the skunks? Should we be afraid of skunks? Absolutely not. (laughs) They're actually a very gentle animal. And this is a time of year that they're going to be getting under your air conditioning because love is in the air. And they're going to be spraying and they're looking, they're in your mulch. If you have mulch, you'll have skunks. They love anything that's the the nasty stuff that you don't want in your house. The termites, the grubs, the bugs, the, the beetles. They just, that's a culinary delight. So they're actually quite gentle. They don't spray unless they fear their life is absolutely in danger. So if you're trying to grab at them or you corner them, Sure, they're going to react because that's their only defense mechanism. But most times they will walk on by and just completely ignore you. They're off looking for love or they're looking for their beetle dinner. Speaking of the fact that they eat all of these things that we don't want in our house, we get into that concept that David brought earlier as far as peaceful coexistence. So why do we need wildlife? Like how are they important in keeping us from having all these nuisances and kind of having a better life. 
Barbara, earlier last week when you had talked about woodchucks, you said it so eloquently because it's one of those species that people are like, well, what good do they do? (laughs) Invite you to talk about that one because I loved it. So sometimes it helps people to introduce coexistence as thinking of wildlife and asking the question, is it a nuisance or a friend? And in most cases, life is actually our friend for the reason that Gwen just mentioned about skunks, but also just ecologically. And woodchucks can dig a lot of, do a lot of damage under a foundation or they eat people's gardens. But by and large, they do really five very important things for the ecosystem that no other animal does in Ohio. And one of those things that's most obvious with their digging their burrows, they also move around a lot and dig a lot of different burrows. So they provide natural water spouts for rain events where instead of the rain running off and eroding everywhere, it actually can go directly down into the ground. If they have an active den, they put a catch basin in their den so that the water doesn't flood their home but they destroy that basin once they leave the den so that the water can get down in there. That also aerates the soil. They eat lots of plants that have seeds and they don't digest all those seeds because they're hindgut fermenters, which is a pretty inefficient fermentation system, unlike a cow, which can eat anything and digest it pretty much. So when they go to the bathroom, their pellets very often contain seeds in this really protected fertilizer packet. And as soon as it rains, then that seed can sprout. And not only does it have protection while it's dry, because not many animals go around eating woodchuck poop, but that seed is protected. And then when it sprouts, it has an instant food supply built into that pellet. So Winter animals in Ohio, they have to go underground below the frost line in order to survive the cold season. So snakes, turtles, amphibians, they all use abandoned woodchuck dens. And even raccoons, opossums, and skunks need those dens too when we have storms. And then in the spring, many of those animals use those dens to give birth to their babies. So fox and coyote don't often dig their own dens. They just carve out a space in an old abandoned woodchuck den, which provides a safe, dry place for them to have their brood. So there's just a million ways to Sunday that woodchucks are very important to the environment. And that's not something we really think about often because we're more worried about the woodchuck digging under the porch and how do we stop it, which by the way, one of the easiest ways to deter woodchucks when there's an active burrow is to take a couple of those cheap plastic water bottles, fill them about a third with water, you know how they're kind of crinkly, and put those down in an active burrow entrance. And a lot of times you never see that woodchuck again. So I think when they they have to move that to get out of the burrow, the water splashes and creates a prism light effect. Seems to be very scary for them. (laughs) So we've had a lot of luck deterring woodchucks underneath buildings using those plastic water bottles. (laughs) I had never heard that one before you said it last week, and I have added it to my do-it-yourself deterrence (laughs) that I send to people too, so I appreciate that. Sure. As far as other wildlife traffic, you know, if folks are getting too much wildlife visiting their yard, they need to ask the question, are they providing a food source, or do they have a really accessible shelter? A porch needs to be underwired so that animals aren't nesting under there, or if you have a bird feeder, don't 
feed 24 seven, which is actually bad for the birds, by the way, especially in the spring, but just put out enough seed that they're cleaning it up halfway through the day. And then you don't have skunks, raccoons, rabbits, foxes, all invading your yard at night, cleaning up all that mess that the birds have strewn all over the ground. I deal mostly with quote unquote nuisance animals and getting people to understand that we all need food, water, and safety or shelter. So Scram can cut off access to safety or to shelter, but I always send a big, long do-it-yourself habitat deterrent list because there's got to be another reason where they're in the yard too. And yes, we all love to see our beautiful birds at the bird feeder, but if you've got skunks eating the seed at the bottom, then, you know, maybe you don't feed the birds for a couple of months and see if those skunks are able to move off. It's getting people to realize, oh, of course they need these things to live and I'm providing them. Even an open chimney to a raccoon is, oh, is that an open chimney space or is that a hollowed out tree? To them, it's the same thing. It's just a way to hunker down for shelter. Feeding the cats is another big one. I have to have so many discussions with folks. Well, the raccoons keep coming on my porch. You can condition the cats to come to eat during the day, put food out mid-morning and then pick it up before dusk and you will limit those other unwanted species on your porch. The cats learn. They're so intelligent. They will pick it up. We had talked about diseases too with feeding feral cats or outside animals. You're Anytime that you have animals coming together to congregate around food, domestic and wild, or just wildlife in general, diseases can be spread. So there are sometimes David will see in the hospital, hey, we've had a lot of distemper raccoons coming from this particular area. He lets our volunteers know, and then we can communicate to people like, hey, if you've got outside food sources, pull those in so we can eliminate this spreading from animal to animal. That's really good because that's one of the things that from a small animal veterinary perspective, we try to tell people that feed colonies of cats to feed always at the same time and remove the food for those reasons as far as wildlife, but then also because they have trained their colonies to come at a certain time. So if they need to travel for whatever reason, if they need to do anything specific, then they're going to come back at that same time. So it's good to know that that's also a good way to to keep the wildlife from coming in and eating the food. So talking about people feeding wildlife, what are the issues with people bringing in wildlife, especially the young, like baby raccoons, baby squirrels, and trying to raise them without being an actual rehabilitator, just somebody that figures it's going to be with me since a baby. So it's going to love me like its mother, and then it's going to be great. So what are the issues with that? from the beginning to when it gets to that point where they can't have them anymore. David, you need to answer this. You see this day in and day out. Every single day, I can make a checklist or a bingo sheet on the things I've seen people feed animals that is inappropriate. And I would check off everything within a month of our starting our orphan season. But with that, really, you have to think about there's so many important things for this animal to be releasable and to be a wild animal. From the very start, a neonatal animal has to be able to breathe and it has to be able to eat and it has to have the proper nutrition to grow. So really thinking about that, when you think about what we have to feed these animals, we have to get very specific with our foods. We go into those macromolecules, we go into the proteins, we go into the carbohydrates, we go into the fats, and we really look at that as a rehabber and try to fit allometrically what is appropriate for them. Big words here, but really we have to really use the science to determine what they can eat. At the same time, 
we had to determine their flow rate for food as well. Another scary term, just trying to make it a little nerve wracking because rehabbing ain't easy. We all know that. You have to determine a flow rate for that animal to be fed to prevent micro aspirations, to prevent large aspirations at the same point, aspirating meaning fluid in the lungs. And then from there, you have to determine how does that animal actually eat? And if you do any of those first steps wrong, you'll get pneumonia or you'll get death. And then if you can get past those steps, did you give the right nutrition? And if you didn't, then you'll have metabolic bone disease. And these bones are not forming correctly. If these bones aren't forming correctly, then the animal cannot be released or the animal can't grow properly. We see it quite often with opossums. Opossums have such a unique body condition that if you don't feed them correctly, when it's time for them to bulk up in their bulk up stage, their bones can't handle the weight that they have carrying on them. And it's horrifying. So with that, really, it's a really scary moment when people say they helped by feeding that animal, we really have to take 15 steps back in our program rather than saying, thank you so much for feeding it. This helps us so much. Rather than that, we have to take five steps back or 15 steps back to determine what kind of damage that animal could potentially have to it. Dehydration, gut stasis, micro aspirations, larger aspirations. When it comes to trauma from how you fed it, all these things we take into effect. And that doesn't even get into the habituation situations because once, if you think you've done it right and you've somehow been successful feeding an egg yolk in human breast milk for your animal <laughs> through to a burnt portion and then you find out that it's your best friend i say it because it's happened <laughs> it has truly happened friends um and you've made it all the way to this point if this raccoon is your best friend or if this opossum is your best friend it doesn't understand predator and it doesn't understand what predators are and the success rate of it post-release decreases by a bifold because of that. So what we really try to do is we offer benchmarks. And these benchmarks are what animals need to be successful for release. Predator, being averted to predators, eating proper natural diet, and all these important things we really take to affect rehabbers. Again, the job ain't easy, but we do it because we want to see these animals successful post-release. Off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> well said. And what is it, you know, because you're talking about the importance of not having them get used to people because they don't, it's harder or almost impossible to get relief. So how long is it before these best friends kind of turn on their best friends? Because, and what are the reasons for that to happen? It could be something too, we talked about zoonotic disease, raccoon roundworm. There's so many things that they're not really turning on you, but they're just shedding it, just being in your home. And I think a lot of people don't realize there's a reason that you have to pass very rigorous containment in order to be a rehabber. So that's like right off the bat, not even that they're doing it consciously, but that's something that definitely people should be aware of. People are good intentioned. They just don't realize. I mean, they have good hearts. They mean well. They want to help. They're emotionally bonded to this animal, but they don't have that background, that education behind it to understand how this animal can harm you. A lot of wildlife, once they reach adolescence, their hormones start kicking in too. And they become aggressive or they their natural instincts for digging come into play and they're tearing up the carpeting and the furniture <laughs> and a lot of them just don't smell very good so I'm kind of surprised at the number of people who you know are okay keeping these things in their home for a while but yeah a lot of it's just natural instincts that are kicking in but they're 
behavioral motor pattern has been disturbed and maladapted by living with a human, they're kind of confused. The one half of them wants to be friends and the other half of them wants to hurt you because they're defending themselves and they don't really know what to do. So we've kind of created disorder for that animal by raising it in captivity and depriving it of its natural birthright, which at some point in its maturity, it tries to follow, but it's confused. So it's really just unfair to a baby animal to habituate it and socialize it or even malimprint it if it's a newborn because you're really stealing their life from them that their instincts are going to try to tell them and direct them to do. Just because they can't speak, they don't talk to each other, doesn't mean that they don't communicate with each other and they don't learn from each other kind of how to be the species that they are. I work with a primate group and especially the small monkeys, they raise them like kids and then it kind of gets out of control and then they try to place them and they don't know how to be a monkey. So it becomes a problem. So I figure it's kind of going to be the same thing with animals in the wild. Yeah, they um, learn get animals behavior from their families or conspecifics for sure. It's necessary for them. When I mentioned the bird feeding, one of the reasons it's not as good for birds to be feeding them a lot in the spring and summer is all baby birds eat insects. That's their main diet. Their parents need to be out foraging for bugs, which are high fat, high protein foods so they can grow well. And if they're hoarding out a feeder, they may not be feeding their chicks the best diet, which could affect the success of that nest group. And then when the babies fledge and can fly, guess where they're going? They're following mom and dad to the feeders and they're not learning what their native foods are, their seeds, their bugs, their fruits. And when weather in a temperate climate like Ohio changes, they better have a huge repertoire of food available knowledge. And they're only learning that knowledge through their conspecifics and their families or even watching other birds. So we deprive them of that if we're encouraging them to hoard out a feeder all summer then they may be lacking some knowledge that they need to survive the rest of the year and on into adulthood. I agree so much with Barbara on that, that we really just focus on talking about supplemental feeding. Supplemental feeding is a good term to use for not only for our animals that are mammals and mammals that need support during a season, but also for birds. So you think about really we supplement, I use my bird feeder as a supplemental during the coldest winter days of a snowy day when you know they can't find the food sources they normally can get. That's a good supplemental feeder. But the second that the flowers have started, the seeds are going that's where you save money also on your bird feed because they have their natural food sources. They love their cone flowers, but instead of using seeds for your feeder, grow some native plants and make a wonderful native garden so they can find those native plants at certain times of the year every year as well. And avoid oh. your fall cleanup. Wait until spring to clean those plants up because they harbor so much seed. Everybody wants to rake their leaves and clean up all the stuff. And I understand that they want it ready for spring but you have just removed some wonderful food sources for those animals in the winter. How does the Wildlife Center operate? How is the funding and how much staff do you guys have? What's the normal operations of it? 
Yeah, so we are in multiple different parts of our operation. We're a 5013C, so we're a nonprofit, not supported by state or federal government. So everything we do is through the community. We call ourselves a community hospital for that reason. And we use donors to help support that program. Through that, we have multiple different areas of support organization, one being Jess's financial arm of SCRAM, which she could speak a little about. And then we have our education campus who are ran by three folks and about 60 animals on campus that are education ambassadors. And then skipping out the overhead, we'll go over to the hospital. Our hospital team, we have four or five technicians who hope to oversee the hospital. And then we also have two other specialists and a coordinator over at our pre-release facility. And we're seeing that for rehab. So in a general term, what we're really working on is we get animals in a hospital setting, are triaged in our medical care, and then once they're stable, they go to our pre-release facility where they're cared for and get their benchmarks for release. And that's their muscle conditioning or flight testing, live prey testing, all kinds of techniques for each one of our species as they're going through. Kind of to piggyback off that. So SCRAM was created because the Ohio Wildlife Center saw a need for non-lethal and humane ways of dealing with nuisance animals. Oh, my phone is ringing. Somebody's got a nuisance. So we, we assist in twofold. We obviously are helping the animals, but we also are helping eliminate those animals that come into the wildlife hospital that would be nuisance species or nuisance animals. So we're eliminating that backlog of animals that come in that David has to work so hard to re-educate everyone and make sure that they are going back to where they're supposed to and dealing with the real issue, which is the entry point. So we support them. There's also we do have a campus that that does events. We are working on being more open to the public in the next year or two. So we do have community events. People can check out our webpage where we're working to be after COVID, we kind of all retreated back into our little turtle shell. And now we're trying to expand back out into the public. But there's great opportunities to come out. And most of them are going to be donation-based. But though any little bit helps. We always have like Girl Scouts that will you know, collect their allowance for a dollar twenty-five donation, and that means as much to us as somebody who donates thousands of dollars. So it's always appreciated. I think the next step of it, though, is that overall, I want to let give Scram Heart moment to shine as well. Overall, as an organization, though, and I want to lead the lead this into Odebure, the same point. Our organization is mostly. St- staffed as we'll call it. It's not true staff. It's staffed by volunteers. We have over 200 volunteers in our organization. So a huge part of our program that we focus on is if an animal is stable and it's an orphan, which is over 40 to 60% of our animals coming in each year, they go to a home care or subcommittee. When they're raised by a volunteer, supported by a volunteer who is trained by us, gets the training they need, Gwen being a huge one in our program for our rabies vector species and our neonatals, give you a big your shout out there. But alongside of that, they're also huge advocates for knowledge. They have so much knowledge from years of experience and they help us to support growth of our organization. So Gwen, another plug, is going to National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association in Delaware and will collect information to bring back to our organization to help us grow. And then another plug at Gwen, sorry, just keep doing it. <laughs> a conference that happens in November to help bring rehabbers for the state together, which is ODBRA. So then I'll just pass it all off to how ODBRA runs because they really were all connected. Well, as I already said, ODBRA is a nonprofit organization that's committed to the education of the individuals and the wildlife rehabilitators on all things from regulatory compliance and best practices and rehabilitation. So we are a working board 
So our rehabbers represent the different districts. So we have rehabbers from Stark County, from up in Medina, Union, Delaware, and we all come together and work to educate. And our conference is really the one of the largest things that we do every year. In fact, it's really great because this is our 30th annual conference in November. We have about 150 participants, and now I'm going to turn it back to David because he and Jess are both going to be teaching at our conference. David is doing a four-hour workshop on songbird identification and neonatal songbird identification and care, and Jess is going to come in and talk about non-lethal mitigation and show how the differences between the commercial companies, which unfortunately are required to euthanize those animals versus their organization with SCRAM, that it is absolutely non-lethal. And conference is just a wonderful opportunity, not only for rehabilitators, for volunteers, and we've had a lot of people, just general public, we have people that come from all over. Last year, we had a woman drive all the way from Florida because they don't have that in Florida. And she was friends with someone from HSUS who said, oh my goodness, you need to come to that conference. And it was wonderful. We have phenomenal speakers all the time. Dr. Moore, it just, the list goes on. Anyway, Barbara, what else do you have? I can talk about the conference, but Barbara's are emerging disease. Why don't you talk about some of the other things that we do? So the board is a working board. We also provide introduction to wildlife rehabilitation. So folks that want to consider becoming a rehabilitator or volunteering with a rehabilitator or becoming a sub-permittee, which is underneath one of the permitted rehabbers in Ohio, of which there's about 70 permitted rehabilitators in the state at this time. That course gives them the basics. It's an all-day course of what's involved with wildlife rehabilitation at what's considered a category one level, which is the mammals that are fairly commonly coming into rehabbers and are going to be some of the species that we need the most help with. They're not always the most easy species because one of those species is cottontail rabbits, and it takes a lot of training to successfully raise a live, healthy, wild cottontail rabbit. But, and then some of those folks may go on to become a category two rehabilitator where they can also take in birds with a migratory bird permit from U.S. Fish and Wildlife. They may take in and specialize in raptors, birds of prey. They may take in rabies vector species, which are foxes, raccoons, skunks, and bats. So there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of need, and especially some of our Southern districts, Southern Ohio, it's just very scant in, in terms of rehabilitators. So if folks who are in Central Ohio know people in other parts of the state that have an interest in wildlife rehabilitation, definitely direct their friends to the OWRA website, which is OWRA.org, and those classes are listed on there. The registrations appear up on that site and folks can contact any one of us from the board or committees if they have questions or things they would like to get involved with. We do utilize volunteers, not just for the conference, but especially for the conference and other activities that are going on. We have an animal placement list. So animals that cannot be released 
that may need to find a home in a zoo or a permanent education facility. So folks that are looking for an animal or folks that are looking to place an animal appear on that list. There's just a lot of ways that folks can get involved. And a lot of individual rehabilitators, which are listed in the permit listing, both on our OWRA website and on the ODNR website, individual rehabbers can utilize all kinds of volunteers, folks that want to build bird nest boxes or perches, or we utilize a lot of little boxes for things like squirrels and opossums while they're in the hospital, things that they can hide, little hidey boxes and things like that. So there's just almost an unlimited way for people to get involved and help wildlife rehab. People that have a special interest or skill in development and marketing, right? We're not usually have time to do lots of that, but no rehabilitators get paid. So folks that can help a rehabilitator in their area get sponsorships or a grant or something like that is always a huge thing for any organization within the state. Are any of the classes, the education online or is everything in person? Well, During COVID, we did run some of the IWR classes online. Most of our stuff currently is in person, but we actually have a new initiative looking at ways to place some online coursework, continuing education, and just kind of general interest features that help people with wildlife or our wildlife rehabilitators with maybe some case studies, things like that. So we're working on that. We have a lot of new things coming up, I think, here in the next year or two. So we're very excited about that. And one of the benefits of our conference is that the Ohio Veterinary Medical Licensing Board approves a tremendous amount of our continuing education credit. So we actually get a lot of veterinarians that attend our course as well. But it's for all levels. It's from beginner to intermediate to experienced seasoned people and to, you know, veterinarians with all that knowledge. So we have a wide array of things for folks to learn. Can people that may not be able to be a rehabilitator, but really love wildlife and they want to be involved, is there a membership, something that they can join to be part of the group for both OWC and OWRA? Yes. So the state OWRA organization has a membership folks can join. It's $25 a year. So it's very inexpensive and it's really great for networking. That's in education, both getting connected with folks throughout the state. Um, And we actually, for folks in Central Ohio, the ODNR Wildlife Diversity Conference is coming up March 1st, which is next Wednesday, I think. OWRA will have a booth there. So we'll be chatting with people all day and have information to, to give to folks. They've had as many as 1,500 people attend that certain times of throughout the course of that workshop. I think lately it's been around seven or 800 folks attend that. So it's a very well attended up that the state puts on and biologists present on wonderful things that they've been studying on wildlife in the state. And then for volunteering through Ohio Wildlife Center, we just have a way to, you just can go on our webpage, request a volunteer, and we can really connect you with multiple different facets. Whatever your interest really lies within an organization's support, we try to have multiple volunteer opportunities as well. And a good amount of our volunteers actually go to conference every year at, at ODWRA. I feel like we made up a good percentage of ODWRA last year because we always want to support networking through the state together. But locally, if you want to continue support, there's multiple rehabbers in Central Ohio, us just being one of those. But again, 
it really just where your interest lies is really where your volunteerism should go but volunteerism will take it anywhere or through the state one last thing that i wanted to discuss is we were talking a little bit as far as with a recent issue with a wild turkey and the these animals are being relocated and that's something that usually is not preferred can you tell us a little bit about what the issue is and why they should not be moved, not just wild turkeys, but any other wildlife. I think any animal translocation is not ideal. It's like picking up, somebody picked you up, put you in France. You may not know where the resources are. You may be in somebody else's territory. It's just in general, it takes something very extreme for ODNR to even consider that. Um, this case, we can't really speak fully on it, but uh, in general with animals, because people ask me all the time, I caught a raccoon in a live trap, <laughs> where can I relocate it? I'm like, well, you can't, you know, there are some animals that with landowner permission, you can re relocate, but again, translocation is, it's just like dropping them off in a foreign country. They're just sometimes not set up for success. Turkeys are fairly social. So my guess is ODNR is going to move them to an area where they're trying to maybe increase the flock size. The state years ago did reintroduce wild turkey into counties that the turkey should be living in. And with great success, I volunteer with Crows Hollow Wildlife in Union County, and we used to never see wild turkey up there. And now we have some pretty good sized flocks of 30 and 40 birds. And it's really amazing to see them. And of course they're suited totally for kind of prairie agriculture habitat and fence rows and creek lines and things like that, forest, pockets of forest. In the urban setting, people want to feed them and they want to get close to them and take photos, not realizing not only the danger to themselves, but also they're putting the birds in a really bad situation of getting habituated to where they're not very, their behavior is going to change in a negative way. And then if they are relocated, that doesn't guarantee their survival, especially if they've been living in an urban area for some time and really haven't been aware of predators and have to forage for food in the wild areas. So we're really going to push hard on our education, especially about species like that. People may have to literally stop feeding their birds for a couple months when turkeys show up. Definitely don't approach them don't throw out food for them. And that's true for other species. Eventually, Central Ohio may have more black bear coming through. We have black bear and bobcat in Central Ohio during transitional seasons. They're so few and far between, not very many people see them very often, but especially black bear is another species that will raid bird feeders and hang around as long as there's a meal. So we really have to change our cultural conscience of how we approach wildlife in more crowded urban environments where these animals, if they don't live here, they may have to pass through at least. And wildlife is very good at adapting to the food and habitat we provide. So the chimney is a great example. If you don't cap your chimney, there's a dozen species that will move in there because a chimney is a lot more solid even than some of your average tree. We have to be smarter than the wildlife we have to be tolerant of some of their activity and behavior because they have a right to live too. And then we have to think of ways to deter them that doesn't harm them. Because if you harm an animal, another animal is just going to move in its place. It doesn't solve anything as far as the human side of it. 
So that's why we work so hard to discourage this feeding and interacting with wildlife. Born wild, stay wild is an ODNR motto that we just really try to hammer home with the public. And again, in fairness to the animal. And I think there's something to be said about having realistic expectations. We are always going to be living with wildlife. We are always going to be affecting wildlife. And it's one of the things I always tell people is if you live in the woods, you're going to have squirrels. (laughs) We're never going to be able to eliminate squirrels from your property. So I think shifting the way that people think about them, a lot of times what we call these quote unquote nuisance animals or these wildlife conflicts, it's really a human problem and not an animal problem. Shifting the way that you think about it is super important. Otherwise we end up with desperate situations and not good for animals, not good for people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we cause the problems and then we don't want to deal with the consequences that we have caused because it's easier to blame the wildlife who had nothing to do with it than to accept our responsibility in the whole process. So is there anything else that you guys feel the public needs to know anything that we have not covered that would be important to learn about? I think it's just a second and a really important reminder, ahnow.org, O-W-R-A.org, and then ODNR all have locations on where you can contact if you find an animal that is distressed or you believe is injured, ill, or orphaned. That's really what all of us here together have the same mission for is making sure we're advocating for those animals but also making sure that if it's an animal that's wild, keep it wild, just like Barbara Ray said there. It's all of us together just trying to make sure that we're doing what's best for the wildlife. How do people get information on the Ohio Wildlife Center, both website and social media? Yep, and it's ohiowildlifecenter.org. If you look on Facebook, it's Ohio Wildlife Center, and then we also have the Ohio Wildlife Center community response page, and that's going to be the one that's monitored by volunteers for people that have specifics that they may need more assistance with. And that webpage is called Ohio Wildlife Center Rescue and Response Team. Thank you. I knew it's so long. I always forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, just message Ohio Wildlife Center on Facebook and the auto message will tell you exactly where to go. And then Scram also has a page as well, right? Yeah. So we've got a Facebook page. It's not as popular as Ohio Wildlife Centers, but we're working on it. But you can also find our webpage. If you just go to Ohio Wildlife Center, we've got a Scram page or just Google us, Scram Wildlife Control. And folks also can call easily the number 614-793-WILD. It's fairly easy to remember, and we usually have kids in school programs recite it so that they can take it home to their families. That's an easy way to get a hold of folks, on, at least on the hotline, yep. to get a call back. And it's actively monitored, but it doesn't ring to a live line. So we get people that call it and call it, and I couldn't get through. You have, <laughs> it, it does tell you to leave a message and then a volunteer, because usually... We have remote volunteers who, you know, volunteer from home. That's another opportunity that they can check that voicemail and give a response back. So always leave a message. One of the info line volunteers lives in, one lives in Arizona and one lives in South Carolina. So we have them all over and they can just answer their phones from home and help those people, help the public. I think that we need to give a shout out to all the volunteers that help you guys because, I mean, they keep the wildlife world going. (laughs) And without volunteers, I mean, in every nonprofit, without volunteers, we can't really move forward. I really want to thank all of you for spending this time with me. It's been really educational. As you can see, I mean, I'm a small animal veterinarian, wildlife ignorant, and it shows some of the questions that I ask. 
but I figure some of the questions that I have are the questions that other people have. And that's what we're here for is to learn, right? The only stupid question is the one not asked. We learn and we move forward and we get better at what we're doing. So thank you all so much for taking your time. And I hope that we get to talk again soon. Thank you, thank you. for having us. Yes, this is awesome.